Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today I am joined by fellow IS team member, Dr. Patrick Maloney. And we are going to talk about everything COVID related because there's been a number of developments that have happened over the last month or so. And we're gonna do our best to kind of cover all of these, including Patrick's last two articles uh, that he has written. So hopefully you check those out, but if you didn't, we're gonna go into a little bit more detail with those uh, right here. Anyway, Pat, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, always a pleasure. Uh, anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right in here. And in particular, I wanted to start with the meteoric rise, what, what appears like a meteoric rise. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it in cases in the United States. I mean, it just seems like they're exploding uh, since we've opened up uh, three weeks ago. Yeah, and I think that that's a pretty fair description of what we're, what we're experiencing. But I just wanted to go ahead and show a, show a pretty useful graphic to sort of illuminate what it is that we're actually talking about. I feel like when we, when we throw around numbers, we have a very tough time conceptualizing what those numbers actually mean. Like I can say that we had 65,000 cases yesterday, but what does that compare to from the last day and the day before is 65,000 a lot. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a bit. So this is a graphic from the New York Times, which, uh, by the way, provides great up-to-date information about COVID in the United States and around the world, all absolutely free um, to you without a subscription or anything like that. So I, uh, I highly recommend it. It's just one of a number of fantastic sources for coronavirus information. Um, so gets, this gets the epidemiologist stamp of approval? For it gets mine. It gets mine, <laughs> certainly. Um, they, do, they do a really good job. And um, the, uh, I mean, the thing is, like, some of this basic stuff, like, you don't need to have an epidemiologist do. Like, th these things can, can really be done by, by pretty much anybody. Um, but I, I also think that their, their assessments are pretty spot on. But uh, the Washington Post is great. Um, there's other academic resources like Johns Hopkins and uh, the University of Washington. And um, there's other independent organizations that are putting out great stuff like Worldometer and all those sorts of things that are accurately tracking cases. But back to the New York Times map that you are currently looking at if you're watching the YouTube video. If you're not watching on YouTube, try and Jonathan will put a link somewhere and you can click on that and watch the video there. But uh, yes. anyway, so what you're seeing here is coronavirus reported cases in the United States. So a reported case, in order to be reported, you have to have a confirmed coronavirus test, at least in this initial stage of the pandemic. Currently, the CDC is recommending that you also report probable cases in order to really accurately assess the scope of the pandemic here in the United States. But anyhow, these you can see are the early reported numbers of cases that we had. And we got to a point where we peaked at about, you know, 30, 35,000 cases in April. And um, this is really when we when we saw the widespread implementation of restrictions in the United States. So we had already closed schools, we had already 
suggested that people adhere to social distancing guidelines, but this is really where we saw these massive shutdowns taking place throughout the United States, which restricted yep. the movements and interactions of people. So the less people interact, the less the virus is transmitted, and hopefully you see a reduction in the number of cases. What you can see though, is we didn't really have a reduction in cases when we decided to reopen, which was around here in the middle of May. So cases from April to mid-May, it really plateaued and uh, in the United States. Now, if you look at individual states, there were some states that were decreasing in the overall number of cases that they were having, like Illinois and New Jersey and New York, but simultaneously, other states were just experiencing that first surge of the outbreak, because it didn't happen, the outbreak didn't happen equally across the United States at one time. But anyhow. But when you, so when you bring all of the data together, during is, the during yeah during the lockdown basically we didn't really do anything as far as bringing the number of cases down we just kind of looks yeah. like we just went steady state i mean we maintained the amount of cases per day at around uh, i don't know like upper 20 uh, 20 25000 okay 25000 okay yeah so yeah and this is a problem so we when you're so in may in May, the United States decided as a whole, pretty much. So the CDC put out guidelines um, for states to begin reopening. However, despite the fact that we had those federal guidelines, there wasn't a, they weren't mandatory for states. They were just serving as basically polite suggestions to states saying, if you wanna reopen, these are the guidelines that you should generally adhere to. However, um, states were really left on their own to develop plans and then implement those plans. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit, probably. Um, but the, the net effect here is that we never had a low level of cases. We never reduced the, the pandemic from, from its peak, really. Yeah, we did buy a few thousand cases, but we aren't seeing case counts near, you know, near zero or as near to zero as, as they should be. There's still this existing reservoir of infection. So if you have a big enough reservoir or a big enough baseline population that has that infection and you say, well, we're going to relax our restrictions, we're going to reopen society, reopen the economy, and you have that reservoir of people going out and starting to interact with people, you're going to see an explosion in the number of cases, yeah. particularly with, with COVID. Um, so COVID has just proven to be this, this unprecedented sort of coronavirus or respiratory virus. Um, so initially we suspected that it was sped, spread by respiratory droplets, but now we actually believe that it's spread via aerosolized spread. So the particles or the viral particles can actually survive suspended in air for a, for any, oh, I'm not exactly sure how long, uh, but for longer periods of time than we would have expected from something like the flu, for example. And well, what's, is, what, what's it currently uh, like for the, um, the droplets, the droplet spread is what it was originally thought to be, correct? And how, and how long did it, how, how long was it for that, for droplets? So, so okay, so 
both droplet and airborne spread are considered person-to-person -person, uh, methods of spread. And person-to-person -person always has this ability to, to be the most explosive type of, type of outbreak. But droplet spread is many order to, orders of magnitude less explosive than airborne spread. So to define the difference between a droplet and a, um, an aerosol, it's all about the size of the viral particles. And when you have viral particles that, that are of a certain size, when you expel them in a sneeze or while you're talking, or um, if you were to cough or something along those lines, those, those particles, uh, those little bits of virus, expel from you know, your mucous membranes and they go directly to the floor. So yeah. they don't, if, unless you were to sneeze on somebody or somebody were then to touch the virus as it were laying on the surface, so that's fomite spread, when there's like an intermediary, an inanimate object between people, um, then that would be how you would experience droplet spread. But in aerosol or airborne spread, those particles, they stay suspended in the air after you leave. So if someone to, were to walk through that and breathe that in, then they would become infected as well. So in any case, we see a doubling of cases approximately every three days with, with COVID. That's the doubling effect. Yeah. So that would be one person becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, happening very rapidly. But when you have a baseline reservoir of 20,000 people and you're experiencing a doubling effect every three days, that 20,000 becomes 40, becomes 80, becomes 160, becomes 320,000. Uh, within the span of, of a month, you know, so it, it, COVID is just particularly explosive. This is okay. And that's why, and I mean, based off of the evidence too, and maybe looking at the, the way that the cases just kind of explode, as you've described it, um, this is what has led the scientific community to be like, hey, we think that this is airborne, essentially, or aerosolized. Well, so yes and no. So the so recently there was a, um, a a commentary that is being written and published in uh, Lancet, I believe it is. I'm not sure. It's a very highly regarded journal, but it's a it's a commentary that's been a result of collaboration between 239 scientists across 32 different countries. And they're outlining that evidence for the airborne spread of, um, of the coronavirus. So what they used as evidence um, is not only previous history that suggests that previous SARS or the previous SARS virus was, uh, was spread via airborne transmission. They assessed a outbreak investigation from a cafe in China, I believe it was. Let me just double check because I do not want to give you incorrect information. Yep. Uh, so it was not in China. It was of a Chinese restaurant cluster. So okay. a cluster occurs when there's a large number of cases that result from a single point of exposure, whether that be a, a individual or, a, um, or an event. 
So what they did was they looked at, there was the one person who was sick in this Chinese restaurant. And that one person being sick led to all of the individuals in the Chinese restaurant also becoming sick. So if we were having just strictly droplet spread of the virus, you would assume that only those people that were in within three to six feet of him, which is the typical, um, the typical diameter where you would actually have viral particles being expelled. So if you were to sneeze, that viral particle would reach six feet and drop to the floor. Um, so you would expect only his close contacts within those six feet to be infected. However, throughout the restaurant, the entirety of the, um, the patrons who were, who were there became sick. And they actually had security uh, footage of all of, um, all of the interactions that happened during that evening. And this, the person who was sick, the index case, wasn't up, wasn't going around to all the different tables, wasn't going to the bathroom, all those sorts of things. So the only thing that could have caused that outbreak within that restaurant was airborne spread of the virus. Okay. And this is by ba no ba just just based off of so that one person is sick and then figuring out how many people got sick after that. Exactly. And the amount of people that became sick as a result of that exposure could not be explained by droplet spread. So the okay. only thing that could explain it was airborne spread. Now this is by no means like a conclusive indictment saying that COVID is spread um, is spread air, like via like the airborne transmission route. But uh, there's a lot of other evidence to suggest that, that COVID is in fact uh, an aerosol or is airborne. And where we get this is the majority of coronavirus transmission we now suspect is caused by the super spreading events. So this would be where one index case or several index cases give rise to an incredible amount of secondary infections. So we're now estimating that as few as 10% of, um, of individuals who are infected with uh, COVID-19 cause up to 80% of new infections. So that would be one in 10 people, one in 10 people who were infected causing eight out of 10 new cases of COVID. And use, there's, there's been a number of examples, but in Boston, yep. uh, a few unknowingly infected, in, people who were unknowingly infected with COVID passed the virus to at least 99 other people um, at oh, wow. a conference. In Washington, a single infected person infected 52 others at a 2.5 hour choir practice. In Arkansas, an infected pastor and his wife spread the virus to 30 ch church congregants. And in Georgia, there was a funeral that was attended by more than 100 people. And the resulting secondary cases sparked one of the worst outbreaks in the country. And all of these things, all of these super spreader events cannot be explained by simple droplet transmission. There has to be an airborne component. Okay. Um, likely in areas that aren't well ventilated, where there's not a lot of air circulation, uh, and those viral particles are just allowed to stay suspended uh, in the air. So uh, as you can probably imagine, when you start reopening, 
and you have a lot of people that are interacting in smaller spaces like bars and clubs and restaurants and now movie theaters, these are places that typically are not having great ventilation where people are interacting in close contact and where you, if the virus is um, in fact airborne, you can have massive amounts of spread in a very, very short amount of time. So that- So, so that, based off of what you're seeing, you would, you would definitely say, I mean, would you like definitively say that you, that you, that based off the evidence that you're seeing that we can say that it's airborne? I mean, I know that that's not the, that's not the like scientific position like by the WHO yet or the CDC that it is airborne, uh, but do you think it's headed, do you think it's headed that way? So here's what I have to say about that. Um, I think the evidence still isn't definitive. I'm of the opinion that if we have even a reasonable assumption that there is airborne spread of COVID, we have to treat it as an absolute certainty and we have to frame all of our interventions around it. Because if you don't take that into account and it is in fact true, you're going to see basically what we're seeing now here in, uh, in the United States. Yeah, an explosion. Yeah. Uh, real quick, are you done with the, are you done with the graphic? Uh, no, not yet. No? I actually okay. um, wanted to, to talk just a little bit more about the things that are contributing to, to this massive influx of cases. So okay. you can see right here around May 15th that that's where we started to our phases of reopening. And around June is when we started to enter into our phase twos of reopening. Also, we had Memorial Day right around May 25th where a lot of people went out, did their barbecuing, interacted in close quarters with a lot of people. I mean, all of us have seen the photos of people on the beaches not observing social distancing, interacting with one another. And uh, basically this was just a big three-day weekend, you know, holiday for, for a lot of people. And just like clockwork, about two weeks later after these events, that's when you started to see just this massive increase in the number of new cases. So Memorial Day in itself was one of these super spreading events, but disseminated across a large number of states, reopening, people interacting with, with others um, has led to just this massive, massive increase. And we are currently setting record number of new cases pretty much every day. And um, yeah, you just, you, we, we have a, a pretty much uncontrolled outbreak of COVID-19 um, in the United States. You also had the, yeah, you also had the uh, states opening up around that time too, right? Did they open up? Yep. I'm trying to think. And uh, beginning, they, of, beginning of June? Well, in the or middle of May is when they May. started. Okay. Yeah. Uh, depending on where you were. Some That's states true. opened at the beginning of May. Some opened at the end of May. Um, but phase two of reopening is really where things got a whole lot more dicey because that's when you started to see restaurants and bars and um, a lot of these places where individuals are able to interact in close quarters with poor ventilation and all of those sorts of things that's really well, driving, well, driving. Yeah, well, well, not to mention too that you have some states that didn't even sufficiently flatten the curve. 
or suppress the curve. They just well, they didn't do that. They just kind of trended sideways, yeah. um, but they didn't go down. I mean, Illinois is a great example of a state that actually did suppress the curve, but there were a number of states, particularly um, like in the South, like Florida comes to mind, uh, that it's, it's just a disaster. <laughs> yeah, an, an unmitigated disaster across the whole South and the West. Um, I think I did, I looked at it today, and uh, there are 28 states where the number of cases has increased day over day, and seven-day averages of the number of new cases has continually increased. Um, and uh, that's not taking into account the people who have moved laterally and have just basically not seen like a massive increase in the number of cases, but have either plateaued or have seen like a small, like incremental increase. In fact, there are only two, two states in the entire country right now that are seeing downward trajectories in the number of cases. I think they're Maine and uh, Delaware. But okay. um, even in states that have done extremely well at flattening the curve, um, especially those states that were former hotspots uh, like Illinois and New York and New Jersey, did very well flattening the curve and in Michigan too, and a lot of the states in the Midwest like Minnesota all, all did very well. But all of those states are now even seeing increases in the number of, um, of reported COVID-19 cases. Yeah. And, uh, do, do, you, uh, do you think that there's a strong correlation between you know, how effective you were at flattening the curve and like whether or not leadership listened to the scientific community for advice on how to yeah, navigate? <laughs> I, would, I would say that you know, that's, that's a you know, pretty, pretty astute judgment. Um, yeah. The one state that I can't, I can't, don't really understand what exactly has happened, and maybe we can go that, into that a little bit, is uh, California. Because California, like, went, like they locked down, they listened to the scientific community, but it looks as though they still, something went wrong. Well, I'm not really understanding why things proceeded the way they did in California either, because Gavin Newsom was very, you know, ardent in his support of the um, the self-quarantine and um, the sort of restrictions on movements and all of those sorts of things. Um, but again, I don't know if it was political pressure or just sort of nobody wants to be the person to stand out, right? And if everybody yeah. is reopening and continuing their reopening processes, it takes a lot of courage to be the one person who's gonna, who's gonna go against the grain. And you know, when you're you know, subject to the you know, political accountability that a lot of politicians are, where you are up for reelection every four years, you wanna get reelected, you know, you're subject to the will of the people and I think when the people are being misinformed or don't have all of the available information or are listening to leaders that are deliberately shunning science, um, then I think that that creates just a lot of misinformation in the public. And if you don't have the public support for these sorts of restrictions, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult to implement them. And uh, there's going to be immense political and financial pressure not to not to do so 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 do you think do you can't discount that yeah do you, so do you think that california should have just stayed locked down 
longer? Do you think that I, was the issue? Because I, think, I mean, he he shut down California like immediately. They they did all of the well, the states. I mean, from my knowledge, I mean, perhaps you have different yeah. information about what happened. Well, California was one of the states that, you know, was open and willing to closing down, but it really happened at a local level. Like it was really San Francisco that really like, they really observed that there was a problem and they were the first city to implement widespread shelter in place orders. They implemented social distancing first. Like they were ahead of the curve on everything sort of gave California, you know, a good rep in like the scientific community. Like these are people who are, you know, reacting and listening to science and observing the situation that's going on right now. But uh, yeah, uh, the, the problem is that I, so there's, there's really like, there's really three things that you need when you're reopening in the absence of a vaccine, which would be like a pharmaceutical intervention. So you have to use non-pharmaceutical means to sort of reduce, reduce the incident number of new cases, which is gonna reduce your number of hospitalizations and that's gonna reduce your number of deaths and ultimately gonna bring your outbreak not to necessarily a speedy conclusion, but a conclusion that is going to be, um, is going to be okay. Uh, we're mm -hmm. not going to experience an excess number of infections and deaths. Um, and you're going to be able to ultimately halt and reverse the, the, reverse the impacts of, of the virus. So the first thing uh, that you really need is you need to just have robusting testing capabilities. So we need to be able to identify the people who have COVID. And we need to be able to do so accurately and quickly. And this is going to enable all of the downstream interventions. So by, by actually putting like a number on, on the number of cases you have, you can then inform public policy decisions. You can say, we have this number, many number of cases. The, the uh, epidemic within our state is increasing or decreasing in magnitude, and you can adjust appropriately. But for a more fundamental reason, the earlier you identify cases, the earlier you can contact the individuals with whom they've come in contact. So we call that uh, contact tracing. And contact tracing is a massively work-intensive process. You need a large group of people who are properly trained and properly equipped to contact people who have come in contact with, uh, with individuals with uh, coronavirus. So the moment an individual tests positive, ideally, their name and number would be given to one of these contact tracers. Then that contact tracer would interview the infected individual and they would ask them about people who they've come in contact with. Then that contact tracer would contact the individual's contacts and inform them that they've been exposed to COVID and they need to self-quarantine for two weeks until they can be sure that they aren't infected with the virus. And this, this is beneficial for a lot of reasons, but number one, it's gonna halt community spread because if you know there's the potential that you're infected, you're not gonna be going out, you're not gonna be interacting with people, you're not gonna be spreading the virus before you have symptoms. Um, and also, you're gonna know that you're potentially infected so you can seek testing and you can seek treatment sooner, so that's gonna improve health outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So does that make sense so far? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then the third thing you need is just, 
you need logistical support and scientific guidance at a national level. So this isn't like a state by state outbreak, by, by state outbreak. This is something that's happening all across the United States. So you really need strong leadership to be sure that all of the guidelines that you're putting in place for non-pharmaceutical interventions are being followed, that states aren't continuing the reopening process without hitting the benchmarks that they actually need to hit. And you need to be providing them with logistical support. You need to be providing them with a national contact tracing workforce with, um, with testing that can be done easily and quickly with an, an appropriate number of tests and then the appropriate uh, training to train individuals who administer the tests and train technicians to be able to analyze the tests and deliver those results in a timely manner. And the United States has failed at every single level of that infrastructure. We don't have enough tests. We don't have the expertise in laboratory environments or the testing capacity, I guess, is the better way to put it. We don't have enough people who are trained to actually analyze these tests. And that's led to a massive backlog in the number of tests. That's led to people not being able to get tested when they need to get tested. And in states like Texas and Florida, people are calling their primary care providers and they're saying, hey, you know, what do we do? Should we get a test? And they're telling people to stay home because we don't have enough tests to give you. So Florida's even reverted back to, you can't get a test unless you've come in contact with a person who's confirmed coronavirus, or I think that that's it actually. Like you need to satisfy criteria to even get a test when testing should be available community-wide to anybody who could potentially be infected. Yeah, I mean, so like the, cri the criteria to get testing, it sounds very similar to what we had at the beginning of the pandemic. It is, We had it no is. testing. They and it's reverted like we, back to that. It's like, so we have made no progress in the last three, four months <laughs> and, in, in, getting, um, in getting testing available to our citizens. But even the things that have proven to be success successful, like drive-through testing, is breaking down in the States. In New Orleans, um, my adopted hometown, you'll line up for hours before the testing site opens and then the testing site runs out of tests within five minutes. So you just waste all your time, you can't get tested. And then in, in Phoenix, Arizona is one of the new hotspots for the epidemic, people wait in line for eight hours for drive-through testing in 100 degree heat. So it's just, we don't have, we don't have the training, we don't have the capabilities, we don't have the manpower, we don't have the laboratory capacity to, to handle the amount of testing that we need to do. And that is the most fundamental yeah. thing that we need to be able to accomplish to reopen. Well, and then we're failing at that number three too, obviously. I mean, we have and, no, 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 no sort of national leadership whatsoever on this. And yeah. you know, currently, cur currently our president has decided that uh, instead of allowing the CDC to have access to data, it's going to go directly to him, which is, or to yeah. the White House or something of that nature. It's just absolutely ridiculous. So well, there's way, a, lot of, a lot of problems with the, yeah. with the and I, I honestly can't, you know, say what, you know, the administration's end goal is, but it's, uh, it's troubling. Um, you had a system that was built by a private entity that was not bid on 
So this wasn't an open competition to build out this system. A private industrial organization was recruited to build it. And uh, now it's being put in the hands of the head of the Health and Human Services Division, which is a Trump political appointee. So you can see why this is troubling because the CDC is a nonpartisan, nonpolitical government organization who has built solid relationships with hospitals, knows what hospitals need to do to report, knows how to evaluate reporting, has, just has the established relationships and the established system. We don't really have time to reinvent the wheel here. Um, it's very similar to when the United States insisted in the beginning of the outbreak, or I, in the beginning stages of the global pandemic, but the United States epidemic or outbreak, that we were going to build out our own tests and our own testing capabilities, despite the fact that the WHO had available testing uh, that we could very easily have built out, constructed, produced, all of those sorts of things. Um, it's just, it's just a very inane action to be to be taken right now at this point. And it I just seems it just seems very troubling to me. It just seems it as is. though I mean, all along, uh, President Trump has been talking just downplaying the number of cases and trying to make it as though this pandemic's just going to magically go away and that it's no big deal and that we just need to open everything up again. And because he doesn't like the fact that the cases are going up, that the actual governmental health bodies that we have, such as the CDC and other sorts of academic institutions, things of that nature, are reporting are objectively reporting the number of cases that are going up. He does not like that, so he wants to take control of it. I mean, I, I don't see, I mean, I see this as an action similar to what Florida did, uh, to what Georgia has recently done, where they want to manipulate the data to make it look like it's no big deal. Yeah, and uh, there seems to be a unfortunate propensity of those who are in charge to have this idea that if it's not recorded, it's not happening. If yeah, I'm, like stick your, stick your head in the sand, like the same approach that he takes with global warming. Yeah. And, like I'm uh, just, just going to pretend it's not real and it's going to go away. It's like, that's just, that seems like just, a, it's absolutely unfathomable to me. I mean, how you could, how you could do that. It's, it's just so irresponsible. It seems very foolish um, yeah. to, to say the least. And that, that leadership that's really required at the, the federal level needs to come from the administration because they're the people who are guiding policy. And I'll, I'll just say that the CDC employs the most brilliant scientists from all around the world, the best epidemiologists, the best virologists, the best data scientists, the best laboratory scientists, microbiologists. And to basically not only ignore the advice, the advice that they're giving you, but deliberately cut them out of the process uh, just seems very, very foolish. And I, I can't even begin to fathom what the, the motivation is. I mean, obviously I have some ideas, but um, it's not for the American people. Uh, it's certainly not. No, it's definitely not for the benefit of the public. And it's, I mean, I don't, well, I guess we'll see, wait and see what happens. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't feel good about it at all, but I'm assuming that the, the data is not gonna be accurate. Um, is, I have a sneaking suspicion that that's exactly what's going to happen. 
Yeah. And it's somehow going to be presented in a way where it makes it look as though, you know, the pandemic isn't nearly as bad, the cases, et cetera, aren't, aren't, aren't exploding, like all of the, all of the numbers currently show. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the unfortunate truth is that, you know, the data are already, you know, pretty, pretty inaccurate. So, um, we have to make allowances for that as, you know, public health professionals and data scientists and, you know, epidemiologists and all those sorts of things. Uh, the problem is it's difficult to disseminate that truth to the American public because there are, you know, if you believe that coronavirus uh, or COVID cases and deaths are over un or underreported, depends pretty much entirely on where you get your news. So you have these news organizations that potentially have nefarious intentions or who are, you know, just ill-informed with people who, you know, just don't understand what it is that, that you know, is, is actually the true situation. But this makes it very difficult for the American public to, to get the appropriate information. So we know that cases, for example, are, are drastically, drastically underreported because the United States just doesn't have the testing capability or testing capacity to test everybody who needs a test, one. And two, uh, this testing isn't going to account for pretty much any of the mild or asymptomatic cases because those people aren't going to seek a test either because they don't know they're sick or because they're not, they're not feeling you know, severe, severe symptoms. So the, the latest number that, that I got, that I've heard in scientific literature, I don't know if this has been changed, um, but it's based on data um, from April. And that data showed that we were only counting about 7% of the cases that were occurring during March and April. And our testing capabilities and capacity has improved since then, but we're still not testing everybody who needs a test. So even if you figure that capacity or that capability is doubled to say, you know, 15%. We're still in excess of 35 million cases in the United States based on those numbers, yet we only have 3.9 million cases that are, that are reported as, as confirmed. So we're just drastically underestimating the scope of, of the pandemic here in the United States, and we're never really going to know the true scope until we have widespread representative antibody testing. And once we have yeah. that, we'll be able to, to really confirm the percentage of people that have antibodies to, to COVID. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see then, but now we just, we just don't know. We don't have any idea. And yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's interesting what you were saying about how it depends on the news organization, uh, whether or not you think that cases are under or overreported. Uh, because I can, I, and I hate to say this, but science has, since 2000, 2016, science has become politicized and it's like, like nothing I've ever seen before. And like, that's incredibly dangerous uh, because science is supposed to be objective. I mean, it is, you know, you have scientists going out, they, they, they do their science, they give their, gather the best available evidence that we have about the way the world works. And then we use that to make the best decisions possible. But that's not happening anymore. Um, yeah. You know, case in point with the cases, 
I mean, that should be an objective point. This is, this is what's happening on, we have a global health crisis right now and we shouldn't try to be playing around or nobody should be fabricating numbers or manipulating data when it comes to the amount of cases. So, yeah. uh, and you know, I have, I have people from the more conservative leaning sources that I've, and this is just my own personal observation based off of uh, friends like on social media and things that I've observed because I follow a variety of, uh, over the spectrum of different news sources, but from the more conservative or right leaning sources, it's the cases are overreported, that everything is inflated to make it look and again, I mean, this isn't all of the organizations, but I've seen this, I would say, greater than 50% of the time with the organizations, the more mainstream organizations that I follow uh, that are conservative. Now, let's say uh, from them, like the cases are overreported in order to make it look way worse than it actually is because everyone's trying to make the administration look bad, in particular the president, because it's an election year. And then number two, uh, they want to underplay the severity of the pandemic uh, because of the business aspect of it, which or the economic aspect of it. And I totally understand that argument, economic one. Uh, but at the same time, you, you can acknowledge that the economy, you know, we need to do whatever we can to make sure that the economy d isn't like reduced to rubble. But at the same point, we need to do everything that we uh, possibly can to ensure that people you know, that we're reducing the amount of lives lost to this. Yeah. Um, so you and have uh, that. And then on the, uh, the more, let's say, uh, liberal or democratic side, whatever, uh, then the, the cases are underreported. They tend to, their views are, tend to align more with what the scientific community is saying. And I, I just think that that's incredibly disheartening to see that. Yeah. And, it it uh, just shouldn't be that way. Well, the cases are sort of unique. So I think a lot of people get the number of cases wrong, but it's, de it's definitely politicized when you're talking about the number, of, uh, the number of deaths that are reported. So that's one where you generally see, you know, conservative news organizations, like you were saying, claiming that deaths are underreported when, and- Overreported. Overreported, excuse yeah, me. When in fact- look, look worse. Yeah, when in fact all all available information suggests that deaths in fact are are uh, underreported to a perhaps uh, significant degree, and this is resulting from a from a lot of you know a lot of different stuff. But um, yeah, and, and I mean we can absolutely go into that. But uh, what you were saying though about <clears throat> about science becoming politicized is is yeah very disheartening and it's just very difficult because there's always there's always several degrees of separation between the scientist and between the public. <clears throat> so, you know, we publish academic papers, we talk to other scientists, and, you know, we sort of trust the, you know, the media to disseminate the information to the public. And, you know, we inform policymakers, make our recommendations, and, you know, trust that they'll make evidence-based decisions. But that's just not something that generally is, is happening anymore. There's a breakdown of, you know, that current paradigm where the media is not inaccurate re reflection of what the scientific consensus is and where politicians are not following evidence-based recommendations. And, you know, the only thing that, that, you know, like us epidemiologists can do is, well, there's two things we can do. We can, we can inform policymakers and um, we can, we can say, 
we need to, you know, restrict, um, we need to enhance the number of restrictions that we have or do the, enhance the degree of restrictions that we have. Um, and then, you know, politicians at that point should, you know, figure out what they need to do economically to make those guidelines, you know, stay in place, which, which doesn't happen because obviously you have a lot of politicians not following evidence-based recommendations, but the other thing that I think that we as scientists need to do is we need to start being better communicators. We need to start, um, you know, creating, you know, content like intelligent speculation does, which is designed like directly to come in contact with the public. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of failings to go around and the scientific community is definitely not, uh, not immune uh, to those failings. Oh yeah, we definitely, it definitely takes some responsibility for that, but yeah, it's, for sure. it's, it's really a shame. I mean, because the, the media organizations in particular governmental organizations, or I should say the administration in particular, but the government, um, you know, when it comes to directing public policy, this science, again, should, should be objective. And there's just been this breakdown, like you were talking about the degrees of separation between the scientists and then what the public actually sees. And I think that part of the reason why we're kind of even illuminating the fact that there, or that you're illuminating the fact that there's these degrees of separation is because now it is an issue that there are these degrees of separation. Whereas before there wasn't issues because, you know, the scientists were listened to, it directed public policy, the media did their best to just promote what the actual scientists were saying. And there's just been this breakdown um, I mean, it's probably been gradual. I mean, it's probably always been an issue too, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the system's I, ever been perfect, but I mean, at least at this moment in time, I think it's fair to say that it is really, really important that scientists communicate directly to the consumer, the public that is, uh, exactly what is going on because the public is not getting the best information. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the the erosion of, you know, the relationship, you know, between science and politics and the media is you know really been happening for a long time and like this isn't just you know something that's you know uniquely you know conservative or uniquely liberal like this happens on both sides probably not an equal magnitude but i mean for you know for every person who who says that you know i don't believe in climate change which is you know typically something that conservatives say you'll have a person saying that the flu shot's not safe. And, you know, that's something that is a belief that you typically hear out of a lot of, you know, people who are more liberally minded. Or same the anti-GMO folks. I was going to say the same thing with GMOs, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, other vaccines. And, um, you know, even like nuclear power is something that, you know, has been yep. derided by, you know, people on both sides when it's proven to be like probably the safest most effective way to generate power but so like this is something that's been going on for a for a long time and permeated different points and parts of society but it's really drawn a lot of attention because one we have almost 140,000 Americans who have died over 600,000 people worldwide who have died and from the very highest office in the land leader of the free world you have his press secretary saying that we're not going to let science get in the way of reopening schools in a press conference. So it's just, uh, you see these stark contrasts and you see 
the battle against science isn't something that's happening behind the scenes anymore. It's something that's been dragged out to the forefront and there's this big bloody fight happening for all people to see. And science- That's the administration's position. That's their position. That's their open position is we're not gonna let science get in the way. It, and and that is unbelievable. If you could label the whole Trump administration coronavirus response in one sentence, give it a tagline, I think that it would be, we won't let science get in our way. And um, that's been accurate. Now, this is not to say that, I mean, I'm not, I'm certainly not absolving the Trump administration of responsibility because they carry most, if not all of it, but they, um, they were getting bad advice from Dr. Uh, Bricks um, from the from the CDC. So she was on the Trump the Trump team, and um, she was using a very model based approach to or Burks, not Bricks. Burks. I always get that mixed up. B I R X. Um, but she had a lot of influence within the White House, and she was using this modeling-based approach to, to forecast, basically, the course of the pandemic in the United States. And, you know, the modeling data, according to her, and uh, I think it was the University of Washington that she was using, um, there was a lot of, of ebb in the, in the pandemic. There was, you know, the, the pandemic was, was reaching a point where you could reopen. Now, this opinion was definitely in the minority and certainly not held by Dr. Fauci and others who are, you know, primary advisors to the president. But there were some, the main point is there were scientists who were giving bad information in the Trump administration. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm, well, I mean, you would never listen to a singular scientist. I, I, at least no. I wouldn't. I, I would have a panel. If I, you know, if I was a leader, I would have a panel of scientists. So that way I can get, would get a general idea of what the entire community thinks. Yeah. But I'm assuming that she was she was handpicked by the administration because her position, what she was modeling or, or her forecasting, aligned with what Trump wanted to hear, which was we can open up, cases yeah. aren't going to be nearly as bad as uh, we initially thought, they'll be pretty low, et cetera, et cetera. It, it certainly wouldn't surprise me, but I can't say for sure. I will say that um, it does seem like if you've got a PhD or an MD, you can be bought like a mercenary nowadays to, to like lend whatever credibility um, needs to be had for, uh, for any sort of like unpopular opinion. So that's why it's very important that, like you said, we look for some scientific consensus. We surround our people or ourselves with people who, you know, may not agree on on everything. Um, in fact, they shouldn't agree on everything unless it's something that there's just such a like vast consensus on or whatever. But you can't set up echo chambers for yourself. You can't bring on advisors who are only going to tell you what you want to hear. You need people who are going to tell you the hard truths. And um, but there's a reason why Dr. Burks hasn't been derided in the media, and Dr. Fauci has uh, by the by the Trump administration. I would assume it's because one's telling Trump what he wants to hear and the other is telling hard truths to Trump and, you know, to the United States in general. Yeah, the, the evidence that he does not want to hear and what he's done. I mean, he is just trying to smear Dr. Fauci. And 
like Fauci has served under, I don't know, like like four, four or five presidents or something like that, like since Bush Senior, I think. Like in the early like late eighties, early nineties. By, appointed by Reagan, but I'm he was appointed by Reagan. Okay, so it's even longer. So. Yeah, but um, yeah, and that's you know that's that's the problem is scientists also shouldn't be afraid to communicate the results that they have that they have. They shouldn't be afraid of of repercussions because science really is the unbiased observance of natural phenomena. But the moment you are holding scientists like personally accountable for the conclusions that they have is the moment that you politicize science and you make people, you know, afraid to afraid to report the truth. It's like the and Catholic and Church you've, you've in adult, Galileo adult, back in the day. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like you don't you hear something you don't you don't want to hear, so you you crucify them and burn them at the stake. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah, I mean we don't we obviously don't do that literally these days, but. Uh, he is doing the 21st century equivalent right now of yeah. that to Fauci by humiliating him uh, and just kind of smearing his name out yeah, in public I mean, in the media. There's definitely a systematic problem in the United States um, with how we dealt with with this crisis, and if it's not something that we that we correct, if we don't have scientists that are you know, directly talking to the people. If we don't have more scientists in positions of power and policy making, um, it's it's something that we're that we're doomed to to repeat. Um, there's just the everything happens more quickly in like this globalized type of world. I mean, whether it's the free flow and exchange of information that can now be weaponized um, and be turned into misinformation, uh, the influence of a political campaign online, or you know, the spread of a, of a deadly virus. You know, um, things happen so quickly, and if we aren't prepared and we don't have the, the proper processes in place, it's just something that's gonna continue to happen over and over and over again both in, you know, natural and, you know, man-made instances. Yeah. Well, so. I'm most concerned about, I mean, watching how we've dealt with this current crisis, uh, how are we going to handle global warming when that really, when people really start to take that seriously? Uh, and, I mean, which should have been 30 years ago, but I mean, that's the same type of scenario where you have to change lifestyles for an extended period of time uh, in order to suppress a curve. Uh, so, I mean, we're just gonna have to do that with global warming. And instead of it, you know, suppressing the curve for a couple of months and then coming in and out of potentially lockdowns, uh, for example, you know, the waves, waves of a pandemic, uh, I mean, this will be over, over decades. But if you look at how people have responded to the pandemic in various parts of this country, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic about, at least the United States, under... As it currently if, uh, is, how it's going to respond to global warming. If you have people protesting wearing a mask, putting themselves at personal risk to do so, just imagine what happens when you tell people they have to buy electric cars or, you know, yeah. modify their life. They have to recycle or they have to, you know, do anything that's going to upset the balance of their you know, current status quo. It's just, uh, it's, it's going, 
it's a truly uphill battle. But at the same time, you won't hopefully have somebody who enables those individuals in you know, the highest office in the land, the most recognizable face in the United States, all those sorts of things. So hopefully you're gonna have an advocate for science in, in the future. And um, fingers I mean, crossed. I, I, <laughs> I don't care who that who that person is, like what side of the political spectrum that it is. Just, just acknowledge the science. Listen but, to the scientific community. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just um, you've got to realize that this isn't a problem that's unique. And like this goes for climate change, but I mean as well as you know the COVID pandemic is. This isn't something that's unique to you know Democrats, not unique to Republicans, not unique to black folks or white folks. It's not unique to the old or the young, the people who've gone to college, the people who haven't gone to college. It's something that affects us all, not equally, by the way, because uh, those who are of lower income and minorities and whatnot are you know bearing the disproportionate burden now and they will in the future, but it's something that is going to affect you know all of our ways of life. It's something that is going to impact the lives, not only of our children, but of our children's children and all future people in, um, in the world. And it's just, if we don't take action, we don't listen to science, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to be well equipped to handle the challenges of the future. And um, yeah. And like I said, everything happens more quickly now that we're industrialized. So that well yeah and then global global warming is a logistic curve too or an exponential so you go through exponential. an exponential yeah an exponential uh growth period of a logistic curve and uh we're just starting to kind of hit the knee in that exponential curve based off of the information that i've seen like the evidence that i've seen over the years uh in global warming and you're just going to start to see it get progressively worse yeah. and i the just I, I i hate to say that yeah. I mean, I, I, it brings me no joy to say that, but every year is going to continue to get warmer and it's going to increase and you're going to see the natural disasters and the other sorts of hardships that come along with having a warmer climate and well, you're not going to like not, it. Not just natural disasters in terms of, you know, hurricanes, tsunamis, all those sorts of things, which you are going to see, by the way, all the evidence is for that out. but bringing this back to COVID, expect to see massive, massive widespread outbreaks of new and, you know, infections that were previously unknown in these, in these areas. So for example, you know, malaria, dengue, you know, West Nile, all of these arboviruses or viruses that are spread by mosquitoes are continually expanding in the areas in which they're in. So the endemic area or where the viruses uh, or parasitic infections in the cases of malaria circulate are increasing steadily as the world gets warmer. So further and further and further and further away from the equator, all of these different species of mosquitoes are allowed to live. So expect to see those parasitic infections spreading. Also, as you know, the world warms and we continually destroy our environment, you can expect infections coming out of the permafrost. Like there was a massive arsenic outbreak in, in Russia 
that resulted from melting of the permafrost and exposing the body of a, I believe it was caribou. I'm not 100% sure, but that was infected with arsenic and caused a massive community-wide outbreak. So you can expect there to be releases of those known pathogens and potentially unknown pathogens. But also, we're continually chopping down our rainforests and um, our- Was it, our, I'm sorry, was it, was, it, was it arsenic or anthrax? Arsenic and an anthrax, element. sorry. Yeah, I think I was, I was, yeah. yeah, you anthrax. said arsenic. Yeah, yeah, anthrax. anthrax. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. yeah. Arsenic is not a communicable disease. That is- No, 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 element. it's an element. You could certainly yeah. get sick from it, but- Very, well, yeah. extremely deadly to humans, but- Yeah. Uh, but as you continue to cut down rainforests and jungles and all those sorts of things, you're coming in contact with animal reservoirs of diseases and you're going to have these massive outbreaks. So the coronavirus, for example, we believe was circulating in the bat population, came in contact with the pangolin population, which is something that's eaten in China, and uh, then from pangolins that transmitted humans. But as we constantly encroach on these populations, we're going to come in contact with recombinated uh, viruses, bacteria. And it's something that you know, we don't have natural immunity to. And it's something that is you know, going to ravage the population similar to coronavirus. So you're getting hit from all of these different areas um, is, a, is a direct result of climate change or our complete disregard for, um, for the environment. So that's just, you know, bringing it back to, to COVID. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, all of these, th there's so many different elements, including the infectious disease element to global warming that, you know, people aren't going to like. And at this point, because we have failed to act, there is going to be some degree of warming that will, at this point, probably not be pleasant, but that, you know, we can still, through lifestyle changes and changing uh, the structure of our economy and the way that we do things, uh, we can still mitigate and avoid the, uh, the more serious scenarios where you know, you're talking about entire ecosystems failing just because you have yeah. the climate changing so quickly that they can't adapt to it. Things, some, something like real apocalyptic almost, where you know, you just have a sudden collapse in sectors of our food chain, and then it's just a domino effect and things of that nature. I mean, that these are realistic scenarios that could potentially not, happen. No, you're not exaggerating or over-embellishing no. when you say an apocalyptic-like scenario. And um, the problem is we're just infamously short-sighted as a species. Um, we advance for the sake of advancement. We accrue power and money without regard for the environment or other people. Our very economic system and societal system in general is predicated on for few to succeed or for few to advance, many have to fail. We play this zero-sum game in our culture, in our society, in our politics, in our economics, where for some to win, many have to lose. It doesn't have to be that way. Our world is bountiful in its natural resources and science has come a extremely long way towards being able to advance to such a degree that we can halt these, these, these climate change issues. 
However, people don't want to change and people only see the short term and they are playing the zero sum game where, where many have to fail. And uh, that's just yeah. too bad. No, yeah, the, uh, I mean, the, the, I categorically agree on the short-sightedness. I mean, I, it is infuriating how the average person operates like that. And I know that some people don't have a choice, right? I mean, if you're third world, poverty, et cetera, and you don't even know how you're going to put food on the plate for tomorrow, I can understand why you're in that short-sighted kind of like scarcity mindset. But for people in developed countries, such as the United States, the vast majority of people, like we are the ones that need to spearhead operations like this mm -hmm. um, for the sake of everyone on the entire planet. Well, and, that's uh, and the we, we still, we still are failing. We're still, a lot of people are still operating in the short-sighted and, you know, one of the things I can't stand about this country, you know, for how great it is in so many different aspects and all of the bounties that capitalism has brought us, it's not a perfect system. And to, you know, to, to think it is, I think is foolish. And also we kind of inculcated this type of philosophy where, it's everyone for themselves, just kind of do whatever you can to get ahead and accumulate stuff. And it's like, I, I just, I just, I don't understand it. I think it's, it's completely unsustainable. The current economic paradigm is completely unsustainable because it requires endless growth. And, you know, first principles from thermodynamics and physics is, you know, you can't have limitless growth or infinite growth in a, in a closed system. The earth yeah. is a closed system. I mean, this is, this is it. I mean, you, you can't have infinite growth in a closed system. It's just not, eventually you bump up against the laws of physics and, yeah. and then, and then that's it. I mean, it's just, yeah, the current, the current model doesn't respect the, the ecosystems in my opinion. And those all need to be factored in to some degree. And they certainly need to respect the laws of physics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree on, uh, on all points there. It's just, uh, it's, I think that what you said is, is very important and, um, is, is very true that for widespread systematic change to happen, especially when you're talking about technological things, um, we're, you know, we're the gatekeepers. We hold all the cards, we hold the keys to the technology, we hold all the money that can be dedicated to research and development. So unless there's this widespread change amongst the few, amongst the tip of the pyramid, amongst the developed world, uh, unless you get the developed world to buy into, to buy into this widespread change, it just cannot happen. Um, it can't. And no. uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just not something that I have a ton of optimism for, but I don't know. I, I will say that my faith in America and people around the world is generally been enhanced as opposed to detracted from over these last four years, which is surprising because these last four years have probably been the worst four years for science and um you know the advancement of you know logic and 
you know, reason, <laughs> reason, but I see people out there in massive protests pushing for racial equality. I see things like the Women's March and the March for Science, and I see people out there protesting and engaging with other people. And um, I, I see that it's not just like a silent majority of people who you know are pushing for for science and who are pushing for equality, but people are not so silent anymore. People are who are representing these progressive points of view who are representing science who may who do make up the majority of the population are finally mobilizing are finally becoming active and i think that that is something that's incredible because yeah. you you can be the majority but if you don't get up and vote if you don't talk about the issues if you don't you know engage in these protests if you don't push the status quo nothing's ever going to change so I will say that that I have a I have a ton of faith in uh, in people, and I think that that just needs to translate into us electing the proper leaders who are going to take us down the right path. So I have faith in people, not necessarily the political system, but uh, hopefully one can lead to the other. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you sound a bit more optimistic than I am. I, I have to admit, and I, I generally, uh, for most of my life, have been a very optimistic individual. But uh, I mean, just the, I guess since 2016 and the complete disregard of science, and you know, we don't we don't have four years to waste. I mean, I I don't even know what this has cost us from from like a planetary standpoint. Four years of essentially inaction on the United States part when it comes to trying to combat, at least on a from an administration level on a national level trying to it's, it's worse than inaction though it's yeah. deliberate he's rolling th yeah rolling things the, back yeah roll things back and yeah. um yeah that's so. that's awful and that's terrible and um i get that i i do and it's been incredibly disheartening to watch and to see as a scientist and as a thinking breathing human American person, like or <laughs> member of the global community, it's been very yeah. you know, disheartening to see. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like the march of progress is inevitable. I do feel like with the massive free flow of information, unprecedented access of individuals to information, I feel like you can only go so long suppressing certain populations and certain individuals before people revolt, before there's some sort of revolution. And this doesn't have to be like a revolutionary war or whatever, but we're undergoing a revolution right now, a, a revolution in, um, in racial equality and racial issues that we're talking about. And it's just, it just takes one inciting incident, an event, to get people to realize that there is a problem and that we don't have to live this way. And uh, I think that, that people will not have their voices suppressed anymore, won't be talked at and told what to think. At least the majority of people, there are the people who are always like the opponents of progress who are pulling you back and suppressing what you're trying to do. 
But those people, I do believe, are in the minority. And I think that, you know, as time bears out, I think that as we get younger, I think we get more open-minded, we get more progressive. And I do feel like that march, as slow as it is, continues inexorably forward, um, despite the setbacks that we have. But I just hope- That's, that's fair. I mean, yeah, I can definitely see, I definitely think with the youth in this country in particular, they're, they're very concerned about the environment. I mean, I have my two youngest siblings are uh, 18 and 15 and, or excuse me, 16 and very, very concerned about global warming. Yeah. Uh, and, very uh, concerned. But they, I, think, I just, I mean, the young people need to get out and vote. <laughs> yeah. So they, they've been notoriously difficult, I guess, for, for years, for, for like all of voting history. I don't know, maybe like since the beginning of uh, voting time itself that the, the younger people just don't vote. And right now we need them to vote more than, more than ever. At the same time, I feel like we're becoming more politically active as a country. So okay. it's very, it's very tough. So it's very, it's not tough. It's very easy to just fall into the monotony of life, right? When things are going well, when the economy is doing all right, it's only in times when you're pushed to the precipice that you advance, that you become engaged. And that's just an unfortunate truth that that's, you know, that's there is that those people who are opposing progress, they work harder to do so. They go out there, they suppress the vote, they, um, they, they will do anything to stack the deck in their favor. And, you know, those of us who are in the majority, you know, we just sort of go about our day-to-day -day lives with faith that things are going to be, you know, generally okay. Um, but, it's like when we're pushed to that precipice, when you see somebody like Donald Trump in the Oval Office, when you have a massive global pandemic that's claiming hundreds of thousands of lives and impacting millions more, then you see change. And I don't necessarily think that Joe Biden is the candidate for change, but I bet you if coronavirus hit the United States, you know, six months earlier or um, we had these Black Lives Matter protests six months earlier. I bet you we would have a completely different candidate representing the United States in the election in the upcoming years. So hopefully, you know, if Joe Biden were to win, we can get younger, more progressive, um, more engaging candidates in the future. But um, I think that, that people are hungry for change. I think that they want something different. I think that they know that these last four years have been one big failed experiment. And to be entirely truthful, we got complacent. You know, those of us who are agents of reason, scientists, we, we let this happen. I mean, we fostered in the Donald Trump era um, in American politics. We took Hillary's win for granted. We said that you know, she's the lesser of two evils instead of supporting her for the candidate that she was. People went out and they voted for third party candidates because they wanted to lodge a protest vote. I mean, we didn't get out. We didn't mobilize. We didn't do what we had to do. And we sort of just took the eight years that we're not, we're not all smooth sailing with Barack Obama, but we're definitely, you know, some of the best in the last, you know, 20 year period or whatever. And uh, we got complacent. 
and Donald Trump is a direct result of, of that. And uh, I mean, if you need to, to blame somebody, all we need to do is look in the mirror, right? And, yeah, yeah, no, of course. I mean, at the end of the day, the, who we have in our leadership is a result of what's going on with the people yeah. uh, because we're the ones who vote and we're the ones who decide, at least that's how it works in a democracy. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, the, we're definitely the ones. But anyway, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, hopefully, you know, regardless of whether or not, well, I mean, I know that Donald Trump is running, running again. So that means that the only other option, if you want to support science, then would be to cast a vote for uh, Mr. Biden. Uh, so I don't think, you know, he is, I mean, I agree with you, he's not the most enthusiastic candidate, uh, but if he is going to support science, particularly in the areas of global warming, uh, you know, pandemic response, et cetera. There's so many different aspects of science and it's so important for, you know, just for politicians and for the way that we live our lives to be directed by the best available evidence. We get that from science. Um, so if, he, if he's the candidate that's going to acknowledge the science, then I guess I'm, I'm hoping that the vast, major, the vast majority or the majority of America does vote for him. And the problem is then is just uh, those those opposers of progress and those opposers of change are the people who get out and and vote that vocal minority is the are the people who are most engaged because they're the people who feel like they're challenged by uh by progress those are the people who are afraid and those are the people who are more readily readily mobilized you know we don't we shouldn't have this attitude that we have to fall in love with a candidate or we have to be excited by them or, you know, they have to woo us to get our vote. They should just, you know, get our vote because they're confident and we should be able to, you know, take some time and, uh, and do it, register, realize the importance of it. And I think that, you know, we're, we're going to, so yeah, we'll see. Um, I'm optimistic, but, um, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll definitely have to see. Um, I'm, ca I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> but about, the, about coronavirus, um, I'm not optimistic. I will say no? this. No, unless, uh, unless states start uh, rolling back um, the... Going back into the uh, rest at home or, or shelter in place or and ordinances and things of that nature. Yeah. I firmly believe that the only option at this point to stop COVID is people engaging in far more restrictive behaviors. And this doesn't even have to necessarily be shelter in place for, for all, um, for all, uh, for, you know, all states, but the combination of shelter in place in universal mask wearing whenever in public could probably bring this pandemic to an end or at least bring it down to acceptable levels where we could control it if we had if we had the appropriate numbers of tests and contact tracers i would say if if we you know were to were to engage in those restrictive practices, we could probably reopen again in two or three months. Like it's not even like, it's not even like we need to stay closed for a year or whatever it is. 
the thing about the thing about COVID is yes, it's extremely explosive, but you can very easily disrupt the spread because it's not a virus that stays active for a super long time. Um, it's something that clears relatively quickly. So if you are able to disrupt, you know, these subsequent uh, waves of infection, you can bring this this pandemic to a quick, pretty quick and uh, speedy conclusion. But um, it's got to take it's got to take the political will to do so, and I don't see that political will at in many levels of government. Um, certainly not at the federal level. Yeah, no, no, yeah, it's definitely not going to happen at the federal. I don't think that uh, the administration has any intention on recommending any sort of shelter in place. I mean, he is hell bent on opening everything up, including schools in the fall. So it's going to come. It's going to fall on the states, and we'll see what the states do. Yeah. I'm assuming the responses from the states will be very similar to how the responses were to the last shelter in place and the reopening efforts and all of that, uh, and where the cases are in the particular states right right uh, right now. But uh, one thing that you talked about though is you were talking about masks, and I know that you know one of the things that has been a bit contentious and like some criticisms coming from the public is that oh look you know, the science scientists weren't recommending masks in the beginning, and then they changed their positions. And then I see people use this observation to discredit science, to discredit the pandemic, and any of the like social distancing or any of the recommendations coming from the community. So I think we should definitely talk about this and what exactly the scientific method is. <laughs> yeah. Um... That's just a completely backwards way to look at it. So this, this is a novel, novel virus. So when we say novel, we mean new. And when the pandemic started and you know, when they first identified this novel strain of, uh, of coronavirus, this was in, you know, I think it was December 31st of 2019. So completely unknown to us before then. So when we're dealing with a completely unknown or novel virus, we're basing all the assumptions that we have on things that are similar. So in this case, it's the first SARS virus, MERS or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and then other respiratory pathogens like the flu and pertussis and like other things like that. So that's all we have to go on. And when the analogs to coronavirus are saying that, hey, this is primarily droplet spread, you don't need the masks because the mask is only going to, you know, it, it'll help prevent droplet spread. So it'll help prevent that, that route of transmission because it'll keep the droplets like within, within your, your mask. But if you're staying three to six feet away from somebody, you don't need to be wearing that mask because if they were to, you know, sneeze or something like that, you still wouldn't be infected. So based on what we thought we knew about the virus and based on the supplies that we had available in the United States, people were buying panic, buying up N95 masks. There wasn't enough PPE in hospitals, which by the way, there still isn't. And there weren't enough masks to distribute to, you know, Americans in general. It was just the safer bet to say, you don't need to be wearing a mask right now because it, you're unlikely to you know, be spreading or contracting the virus. But 
when you're dealing with something that's spread via aerosol or when you're seeing these like super spreader events or when you're opening up society and they're maintaining a three to six foot distance isn't always feasible, wearing a mask is absolutely essential because it's going to protect you from expelling droplets into the air, going to keep those with you basically. And um, if you're wearing a mask, it's going to also make things more, you know, difficult to, to inhale directly. So basically the, the evidence has, has changed. We've learned more. And since we're learning more, we're changing our recommendations. And that's like, that's what science is, right? Like you operate under limited conclusions, you make initial hypotheses, and then when something comes along to discredit that hypothesis, you need to develop more hypotheses based on new evidence. That's just like the iterative process of the scientific method. And by the way, you want us doing these things, right? Like you, you want us to be changing our opinions. You don't want us to draw conclusions and ardently support those regardless of whatever evidence comes out because that's to your detriment. If we were still saying don't wear masks, um, you would see far, far more numbers yeah. of cases. No, and, absolutely. Like, yeah, like you said, I mean, this, this is science in action. I mean, this yeah. is, this is kind of the, uh, the process and yeah, people are, don't normally see it. They don't normally witness it because science, as you said, you know, the degrees of separation between the scientists and the public, uh, they, they don't normally see the scientific process in action and they're actually seeing it now. So they don't, and they don't really fully understand it, which is fine. Okay. I mean, you've never really seen it, but this is it. This yeah. is how science is done. Uh, we go out there, we gather evidence, and then, you know, what we recommend today may be different tomorrow based off of new evidence. If all the evidence uh, points to a different uh, suggestion tomorrow, then th that's what we're going to do. We're going to suggest that because you can only make the best decisions when you have the best available evidence. And if that changes, then your decision has to change as well. And it should, right? I mean, as you said, that's exactly what you want scientists to do uh, is to change their minds when the evidence changes. And the one qualifier I will add is that it's not actually, you know, when, when, when the community is making recommendations based off the evidence, it's not an opinion. Like in the same sense that I think like, you know, my favorite color is blue type of thing. <laughs> yeah. The sciences, the scientists are saying, this is what the evidence is pointing to. We are acknowledging this evidence and passing it along to you. And hopefully you will, you will uh, listen to what we have to say because this is what the evidence is telling us. Yep. Based on what we know, the totality of what we know, this is what we can say. Like this yes. is what, you know, conclusions that we can arrive at. Or even I, I really like, you know, separating everything out and basing and, and saying like hypotheses, because that's basically all we're doing, right, is constantly developing and testing new hypotheses um, or modifying hypotheses based on evidence that comes in. And I don't want to say it's like our best guess, but in the most simplistic terms, I suppose that yeah. that is really what, you know, it is, is based on the available information we've made the most accurate conclusion that we possibly can. And that's what we're giving to you. But time, as time goes on, you know, things, things change, more evidence becomes available and we're working with more data points. So there's just, uh, there's more that we know. And we shouldn't be sticking to our initial assumptions just so we can say, 
we were right the whole time because that's not that's not good science and that's not where you want us to be um so yeah i i mean that's just sort of sort of my position on it um in a nutshell i guess yeah no absolutely and you know i'm, I'm hoping that <laughs> that's the position of a lot of scientists on it uh you know i can certainly appreciate that the public doesn't again have a have a good understanding of science in action but one of the takeaways that I am hoping uh, that, the, that the public can see about how science is done is that this is what it looks like. I mean, it doesn't, it's not always the prettiest. Um, you know, you have conflicting, conflicting claims, you know, partic particularly like, for example, over hydroxychloroquine and whether or not that was an effective treatment against COVID. Uh, but the, you know, for example, you know, with the mask thing, you know, conflicting claims there, changing positions, uh, and that's just that's just how it is. And eventually, uh, the best position wins out over the long run because all of the evidence converges towards it. Yeah, uh, and then that's how we operate moving forward. And now, of course, you know, nothing is set in stone in science either. You know, we have theories that have lasted the test of time. So, for example, you know, evolution. Einstein's theory of general relativity, but they're not absolute in the same sense as like mathematical or philosophical absolutes. Meaning that if something came along and somebody was actually able to build upon those models, then they would change. And you know, all the results would be able, to, uh, you know, they were replicated independently throughout the community and it would, it would change. Uh, and that's, that's just kind of what science is. And uh, you know, what's more, what are you going to replace it with <laughs> if if not science you know science is like the best framework that we have currently to generate knowledge i mean you're gonna are you gonna replace science with ideologies with a, some other sort of belief system uh it i mean the only way like... that you yeah the only way that you show that science yesterday wasn't as good as a sciences today is because you did more science <laughs> yeah yeah so and i don't think that you know Ideally, I think you you would live in a world where, you know, science informs ideology and, you know, coming to, you know, the understanding that it's okay to change your beliefs based on available evidence. So you can just not even say science or whatever, you know, if you just say, you know, evidence or, you know, observable phenomena. I mean, it's okay to, it's okay to change, you know, what it is that, you know, you believe or what it is that you're saying. And I think that people just generally, they don't like to feel like they're wrong. Um, oh, nobody does. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you just go out and you just look for things that confirm, you know, your previously held beliefs. But the thing is, the stronger you stick to a position, and the more evidence that mounts up against you, the more foolish, you know, you ultimately look. And I feel like that's what, you know, a lot of people who, you know, maintain like these, you know, anti-progressive or, you know, regressive policies need to realize it's you're on the wrong side of history. I mean, as, as more things come to bear um, and more evidence becomes available, you will not be remembered well. You're going to be remembered for your ignorance, not for your ideology. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, 
that's really what you know these politicians and policymakers really need to you know be thinking or understand. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me, but then there are plenty of individuals who take that position. I mean, maybe there's a some you know certain personality types. I haven't really looked into it. Certain personality types, or as you get older, you just become more resistant uh, to change, more recalcitrant, and like. There's plenty of young people yeah. who don't want to be who don't want to be proven wrong. I think that that's oh yeah. Well, I, I guess I was talking about. I mean, I think, I think that I think I think that the the not being not wanting to be wrong is something deeply human. Mm -hmm. um, like it's just kind of hardwired into you, and you really have to train yourself in order to be like, oh okay, I was wrong, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. Uh, I but I, I guess I was I was touching on more of the like the regressive or the anti-progressive or like status quo like yeah you just want to keep things as as it is you don't want anything to change and i don't know if that is something that develops with people you know if that's something that you always have i um, you know certain personality types or if it's you know maybe as you get older you know like okay i worked really hard i kind of like how everything is right now i don't want it to change type of dealing yeah yeah i don't know I'd be interesting to look into, but yeah, uh, definitely, I'll leave that to the psychologists or sociologists <laughs> or yeah, yeah, scientists. But uh, yeah, got was, enough uh, to do. <laughs> was there was there was there anything else? Uh, any other graphics or anything else that you wanted to touch on? I mean, we could sit here and we could talk all day about uh, you know the reemerging uh, COVID pandemic, and I mean, uh, I think that. Uh, you know, we'll probably have to, you know, talk more in the future and do future episodes, but uh, we're already running long and uh, <laughs> got, a, got a little off topic for you guys there, but I hope that you enjoy the tangents as much as you enjoy the, uh, the guided or planned parts of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I suppose the global warming tangent was, I mean, it's certainly still relevant, right? Particularly when you were talking about the, uh, the infectious disease, the rises of infectious diseases and uh, you know, the potential rise of pandemics like we're going through right now. So, I mean, yeah. there's definitely, there, there's definitely uh, material there that overlaps. Oh, for sure. And I don't think that we should just be, uh, just be talking about COVID. I think that, you know, talking about what's going on in the world um, in general is, you know, just as important because all those things, like you said, are very, very interconnected with, with one another. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I guess then we'll uh we'll wrap it up there. Cool. Sounds good to me. Okay, fantastic. Anyway, for all of those of you, those of you, I should say, uh <laughs> who have tuned in, uh thank you so much. So please make sure to check out the YouTube channel if you're listening to this on the podcast, because uh there is a fair bit in the beginning there where we go through a graphic and Pat talks about the cases and everything. Also, I'm going to be linking to the two articles that Patrick wrote recently. If you haven't checked those out, please do. They are fantastic. Uh, you know, definitely make sure to like the YouTube video, subscribe, etc., all of that, and stay tuned until the next episode. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and in need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.